there is fixing the problem of the client and fixing the system. And I think those have to be sort of dealt with slightly separately because fixing the problem of the client is also about sort of understanding the profile of their vulnerability. Welcome everyone to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This time on Kickback, Asoka Obesekere. He is the executive director of Transparency International in Sri Lanka. The interview with Asoka covers a lot of different topics. Here I just want to highlight three. First, Asoka outlines how TI offers legal advice to citizens via so-called advocacy and legal advice centers and how such mobile legal aid clinics allow people to receive legal advice that otherwise would not be able to do so. Second, the two discuss the system of corruption in Sri Lanka, how corruption has become normalized and whether attitudes about corruption can be changed. Finally, Asoka and Matthew discuss how registries of politically exposed persons can be used to fight corruption. Here, the two discuss previous efforts in the Ukraine and how they inspired the work of Transparency International in Sri Lanka and the challenges that such efforts face. Without further ado, here are Asoka and Matthew. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, And today I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Asoka Obesekara, who is the Executive Director of Transparency International's Sri Lanka chapter. Uh, Asoka, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Professor. Let me ask you first if you could please share with me and with our listening audience a little bit more about your own background. What is it that got you interested in working on corruption and how did you come to your current role as the executive director for TI Sri Lanka? So um, by training, I have trained as a barrister, uh, which is a, sort of an, an advocate. I've, and my postgraduate studies have been in political science. The route that I took was a little bit of an unconventional one. I had um, uh, worked briefly um, in corporate tax advisory with Ernst Young in the UK, following which I had then worked at a couple of um, think tanks in the UK, which had been looking at things like the effectiveness of select committees, parliamentary select committees. And in doing a lot of that sort of work, my interests around um, the flows of money arose, but also around accountability and the ways in which sort of um, legislative bodies also function and hold uh, the state to account. So that's really where things started out. I returned back uh, uh, home to Sri Lanka after a few years of working in the UK. And when I got back home, I spent three years sort of working on a parliamentary platform which looked at um, every single thing and coded every single thing that is said and done in the main chamber of parliament and in, in its committees. 
And so then it just sort of unlocked this idea of accountability, starting to identify gaps in accountability. And that's really where it started. And then one thing led to another. I got interested in asset disclosures of elected officials. And before you know it, I had the opportunity of engaging with the Transparency International Sri Lanka. And, and that's how I landed up here. Terrific. And how long have you been with TI Sri Lanka now? So I'm now in my approaching my completing five years at TISL. Great. And tell me a little bit about some of the projects that you and your colleagues at TI Sri Lanka have worked on, because my understanding of Transparency International as an organization is that it's a, it's a highly decentralized organization in that there's a secretariat based in Berlin, but each country or most countries have their own national chapter. And those national chapters actually vary quite a bit. In, not only in their size, but in their approach to addressing corruption in their own countries. So can you tell me a little bit more about, in particular, what kind of approach you and your colleagues at TI Sri Lanka have taken? Sure. So, I mean, if I had to sort of define our work, I would say that you have the sort of the core corruption work, and then you also have other governance-related work. Even when you look within core corruption work, um, which is where our mandate really fundamentally lies, you have the uh, more public-facing side. So you know, we have um, an office here in Colombo, which is our capital, but also in the northernmost uh, province of Sri Lanka and the southernmost province, where we offer legal advice for citizens who are having to navigate their way uh, with the state. And needless to say, sometimes there are gatekeepers that emerge when you're engaging the state. And so sort of providing free legal advice for those uh, citizens. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, we work on areas around proceeds of crime, um, looking at areas around asset recovery, asset disclosure of elected officials, amongst other things. We've also launched a politically exposed person register so I'd be happy to go into those in more detail. On the other governance-related work that we do, we've been um, at the forefront of pushing for the right to information in Sri Lanka and also had an opportunity of being there at the final few drafting committee meetings uh, when the right to information bill was being passed, uh, but then also on the public interest right to information requesting. So that's another area. And there's something called the Open Government Partnership, which I'd be happy to discuss at greater length, but about how to develop this interface between civil society and government and just trying to like make civil society and government more familiar to one another. And then another area is around election monitoring with a specific focus on the abuse of state resources. So that's quite a few things, but we are busy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that that's a lot of different and diverse array of activities, and there's so much to ask about. I'm not even sure where to start, but maybe the first, the first one of those things I want to ask you about is the first one that you mentioned, and that's providing legal advice to citizens, which is, I think, a little bit different from what many Transparency International chapters do. I don't know about all of them, but, but I've had an opportunity to speak with people from various TI chapters, including on this podcast, and I'm not familiar with many other chapters engaging in, in offering legal advice and legal counsel. Can you say a little bit more about how, was that something that preceded your tenure at TI Sri Lanka? Is that something that happened when you got there? And how and why did that become an important part of your agenda? And maybe if in the course of explaining that, if you could say a little bit more about the kinds of legal advice that you offer to citizens, what kinds of corruption-related problems 
are ordinary citizens encountering where they would need the legal assistance of a group like yours? I can give a couple of examples, maybe. To answer your, the first element of your question, this is something that TI globally, um, they have something called ALACs, Advocacy and Legal Advice Centers. And different chapters have, um, you know, choose to have sort of set up ALACs to sort of really engage the public. Our ALAC has a few key areas which it has sort of engaged on. And one area which has been a particularly ripe area has been the issue around land, be it in um, areas which have been war affected in the north to areas which have been less directly war affected in the south. Land is a key issue. And very frequently when it comes to title, you have different issues connecting to fraud. You have people who have been displaced who are returning to their family lands and they don't have their title deeds. Um, there are a lot of vulnerabilities that emerge around areas like that. And so what we do is citizens sometimes may get caught with a gatekeeper who says, give me 2,000 rupees, or maybe a little more now, maybe around 5,000 rupees. 5,000 rupees is around $25 for a title deed. And, you know, capitalizing on that vulnerability, people who have very little very frequently end up having to sort of pay money to all these different um, gatekeepers. So we help sort of advocate for those citizens, and we have small little advertisements in the national newspapers, in the Sinhala and Tamil language, which are the sort of um, the two official languages of Sri Lanka. So that's how we reach out, that's how we engage. We end up representing people before sort of tribunals. Uh, we end up writing on their behalf when uh, the, the state system seems closed off to them. These are some of the examples of how we engage. Maybe one final point that I would make is that we also have begun to learn from our experiences and learning that, you know, Generally, the sorts of people who may walk into our office are maybe um, middle to um, relatively old men. Um, so how do we start engaging with different groups of people? So we now start having like mobile legal aid clinics where different people highlight a particular problem in an area and we go and set up in those areas and provide legal advice. And the number of women particularly who come and engage when we go to a particular village or town enormously increases as opposed to waiting for them to see a, a newspaper advertisement or come in person to our office. So I would love to ask you a little bit more about this, and in particular, the crude way to ask the question, and I'll try to make it a little bit more uh, sophisticated in a moment, is does this work? And what I mean is, in many countries that I've studied or that I've learned about, you see phenomena similar to what you've described, which is that uh, people, especially poor people in rural and also urban areas who need something from the government, if it's a land title, if it's a driver's license, whatever, when they go to try to get these documents or get the kind of assistance they need, they're hit up for what we might describe, what we sometimes call a petty bribe. But the language of petty can be a little bit, it's not petty from their perspective, right? Twenty-five, The equivalent of $25 or 5,000 rupees, my guess is that for a poor a uh, smallholder and worker in uh, Sri Lanka, that's not a petty amount. But the, the issue is in many countries, there's not much that can be done about this. The, there's no remedy. Even if you got an excellent person from a well-meaning civil society organization, there would just not be much that anyone would 
do about this. So my suspicion is that since you and your organization have invested substantial resources in doing this and you've been doing it for a while, that it is possible to get some kind of relief, some kind of remedy in, in the Sri Lankan context. But I'd love you to say, I'd love if you could say a little bit more about how and why that is, because the cynics might say, if this program didn't exist and you proposed creating it, isn't this going to be a waste of time? You can get the best legal aid in the world, but you're not really going to be able to help this person uh, get any kind of meaningful remedy. So to talk about how and why uh, this actually works in this context. There is fixing the problem of the client and fixing the system. And I think those have to be sort of dealt with slightly separately because fixing the problem of the client is also about sort of understanding the profile of their vulnerability. One thing that we've learned is that someone may be vulnerable to corruption when you may not even think it, because actually their vulnerability to corruption comes from the fact that they actually live maybe 10 kilometers away from the town center, but there's no bus that actually travels from their village to the town center. So as a consequence, that 10 kilometers could be an hour and a half of walking plus, you know, taking a bus and everything else. And then people are then clocked on to the fact that that person is vulnerable and therefore may be more susceptible to some form of bribery. So as a result, I think by engaging with an entity like ours, the advantage that they have is that there's someone else in their corner. And I think when there's someone else in their corner, the state authorities also more willing to engage and actually see that there is someone helping them and so ensuring that they get the service that they deserve. So, I mean, on one side, this is also just about ensuring that people get the services that they are entitled to. It's fighting corruption by giving people what they actually are due. When it comes to fixing the system, that is sometimes a lot more challenging. And I think... This is where also the issue around um, even the way in which the entire anti-corruption system in Sri Lanka is set up. We have an anti-corruption commission, which is the real all roads lead to this commission. And yet this commission happens to be very, you know, Colombo focused in its presence. So if you're 200 kilometers out of Colombo, do you feel like the commission is really going to sort of assist you sufficiently in a raid or something like that to address a, address a challenge? I mean, when you actually look in practice, the commission has actually been a lot more effective in tackling petty corruption than it has been in tackling sort of political, high-level political corruption, things like that. So, I mean, you know, the willingness of helping someone who is maybe more marginalized and at the bottom of the economic spectrum has actually proven to be more effective in Sri Lanka. That said, the fact that it is still enormously centralized has been a challenge in actually sort of driving accountability for uh, corruption issues. So getting citizens the, the recourse that they deserve is a lot easier than holding people to account. And I think Coupled with that, a typical criminal case in Sri Lanka takes 10 and a half years to complete. So in light of that, you can see right from the outset, even those who are prosecuting never feel that there is some sort of justice that will be served from the timeliness of justice perspective. 
So those are those are enormous challenges which sort of also lie in the judicial system and things like that. So I mean, assisting people to get their recourse is possible, but ensuring that there are sort of criminal justice outcomes is very, very challenging. I see. So the way you put it, I thought it was really helpful that you're trying on the one hand to help individual people who are victimized by corruption, uh, who are victims of the system, but then also to change the system. And that while actually it sounds like it's, it's I don't want to say it's easy, but it's achievable if your goal is to help an individual person. So the person comes into your office and says, I need to get my title. This guy won't give it to me unless I pay 5,000 rupees. That if they have someone like your organization in their corner, basically making a lot of noise saying, why are you asking for this is a ridiculous demand? This guy will get, he'll get his title and he won't have to pay often. But that that doesn't necessarily address the deeper systemic issues because the same corrupt public official might be asking a hundred people for the 5,000 rupee bribes and you can help maybe two of them, but the system persists. Precisely that. And that's where it's important that um, with the sorts of issues that emerge, we also then have a responsibility of also advocating it publicly as well, just to sort of raise the voice of this sort of issue. I mean, one issue that we tried to champion last year, and it's a long-standing issue, is around the admission of children into schools, into public schools or state schools, what we call government schools, people are still paying inordinate amounts of money that could even be in thousands of US dollars to get their child into a school, which is a free school. So how do we address those sorts of issues? There are societal issues there as well. You know, does a parent really want to be a whistleblower on an issue like this when it could compromise their child's future or their child will have to go to that school and then they could be vulnerable to sort of um, reprisal? Um, so, you know, these, these challenges are sort of societal, societal challenges are there as well. It, you mentioned whistleblowers and people who might be interested in blowing the whistle but, but being nervous. Are the legal services that your organization provides, does that include support and protection for whistleblowers? I know in some places uh, that's an issue where a potential whistleblower really needs maybe legal counsel or at least an advisor, or is your organization more focused on helping people get their permits or helping their people get into school but that helping people who want to become a whistleblower is kind of is something that maybe a different kind of organization would handle. No, I mean, I mean, we take those on, and even frequently, sometimes there are uh, citizens who fear filing a complaint or filing or trying to get a particular uh, kind of bit of information out. And in those circumstances, we also take the responsibility at times where. It is, it is clear that someone has a legitimate fear. We may request for that information or file that complaint in light of the fact that the citizen themselves may have the evidence but may not want to be the person in the line of fire on that. So that's also sort of a, a responsibility we take on. It's a, it's a continuous sort of learning process for us on how we have to handle matters of this nature. You said something earlier that I want to follow up on that le- has less to do with your organization specifically, but more about the, the way corruption operates in Sri Lanka. And I should acknowledge I know very little about Sri Lanka, so uh, please forgive me if any of these questions are coming from a place of ignorance. But you talked about petty corruption and political corruption, or higher level political corruption. And that's obviously not a sharp distinction, but I was curious as to whether in Sri Lanka 
these different kinds of corruption are really part of an integrated organized system or whether they're largely separate. And the reason that I ask this question is, as you're probably aware, there's been some research that suggests in some countries the corruption system really is an organized and integrated system where the people who are engaging in petty corruption, the, the low-level person who asks a bribe uh, to give someone a permit or a title or a driver's license, actually paid money to get that position in the first place and then takes some of that bribe revenue and kicks it up the chain or to politicians who provide protection. I mean, this is what the political machines in the United States back in the 19th and early 20th century looked like. There was some interesting research also in South Asia in places like India, for example, that suggests these integrated systems. But then there are other countries where there may be a lot of political corruption and there may be a lot of petty corruption, but it's, for lack of a better term, disorganized and uncoordinated. That what's happening with the high-level politicians and what's happening with the policeman on the street or the permitting officer aren't really all part of one big system. It's just a lot of corruption occurring at different places. The, the dichotomy is too simple. It's not a one or the other. But I'm interested, based on what you know about corruption in Sri Lanka, does it seem more like the model of, for lack of a better term, a vertically integrated corruption system? Or does it look more like the model of disorganized, uncoordinated corruption that takes place at different levels? To address your question, um, when we, let's say, for instance, look at political corruption, and we look at even the example of contesting an election, Sometimes contesting an election is considered a financially illogical proposition. You may be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a job that may not even pay $500 a month. So where do the incentives lie and how does it work? I mean, in the same way, you know, getting a position, even if you're in government, the idea of getting a position that allows you to give jobs, things like that, how do patronage structures work? I think it is an essential component of understanding corruption in Sri Lanka. It's easy just to say, oh, it is uh, corruption. And I mean, it is. However, when we think a little bit around the idea of what are the expectations of elected officials, you know, it shines an interesting light because I mean, just to sort of give you a, like, a, like a, an example, if I was a politician, or let's say the head of an organization or a big company, and I don't give my son a job, you or I may think, my, well, that's good. You know, that person is sort of showing that they're remaining independent and they are not sort of um, misusing their power to give their child a job. However, in Sri Lanka, many people may think, my goodness, if this person is not helping their own child, how are they going to help me? So even still, I mean, like we've had a, we've had a government which has come on a, a good governance mandate in 2015 and that was voted out uh, late last year. And I think one of the challenges that we've realized is that, you know, they may get elected on a good governance platform and they had enormous failings. However, also citizen expectations also are such that people are there to extend their patronage structures to help the citizen. So, you know, understanding that dynamic is actually quite crucial. When it comes down to, let's say, petty levels, petty corruption, it has got to the stage where it is transactional to the extent that many people um, associate paying the police 
with, with a small amount of money as almost sort of a normal practice. There is still a sense that that is wrong, but I think it has got so normalized that, you know, that just sort of keeps ticking on. And uh, the idea of you doing something wrong has also diminished quite considerably. So you touched on in that response a, a couple of times, uh, this phenomenon that, for lack of a better term, we might call a cultural acceptance of corruption. I want to be careful when I use the word culture. I don't mean anything intrinsic to the Sri Lankan or South Asian culture. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about contemporary norms or practices or expectations. And again, this is a phenomenon we see in many, many places where corruption is a, an endemic problem. You mentioned both at the lower level that people might not like bribing a police officer, but it becomes so routinized that it seems normal. And then at the higher levels, this perverse thing where when people don't, what we would say, misuse their power to help their friends and relatives, instead of being viewed as a sign of their integrity, it's viewed at least in some quarters by, as a sign of their lack of efficacy or you know, ineffectiveness. And this raises a question that many people who've worked on fighting corruption in, in these challenging environments have struggled with, and I'd like to get your perspective on it. What can or should be done to try to alter cultural understandings of what we would recognize as corrupt behavior? Are there ways to change people's attitudes through campaigns, through public education, through uh, other kinds of means? Do you think it's really more that the change in attitudes will follow changes in incentives and practices? Like people start going to jail and they start changing their attitude about what's culturally acceptable. Again, different, I've talked to activists and, and reformers from different countries who have struggled with these issues and there are different perspectives on what an organization like yours can or should do to try to change attitudes and cultural expectations. What's your perspective on that question? I think, firstly, I would say that the views on things like conflicts of interest, it is not part of the normal terminology. I mean, those sorts of networks are very frequently, the expectation is that what may be considered a conflict of interest should actually be used to ensure that uh, the, the right outcome for oneself occurs. So I think like tackling that uh, challenge, I think is particularly sort of important. The idea of even when we look at issues around, let's say, right to information, trying to change the nature of the conversation so that someone feels entitled to information as opposed to feeling like they have to explain who they are and why they should be given the information. So things like right to information have taken a step towards changing the balance of power in that conversation. And I mean, it's still very early days. But I mean, also it's about sort of, um, uh, there's a responsibility uh, in organizations like ours. In addition to sort of highlighting where some of the problems are, it's also about trying to um, name and fame those who are actually doing their job properly. And I mean, we uh, sort of have a collaboration with an organization called the Accountability Lab who runs something called Integrity Icon. And it's about naming and faming those who work with integrity. So it's also about sort of approaching these sorts of issues positively um, and sort of showing examples of those who have done things properly and the, and the outcomes that arise from it. 
But enforcement is a big problem because I think lots of people, you know, they will view some of these anti-corruption ideals as, as sort of naive because they feel like enforcement takes such a long time. You know, enforcement and filing complaints um, are luxuries that some people can afford and most people cannot. So I think those sorts of challenges need to be sort of led from the front. And I think um, there are sort of legal innovations which have also allowed for, let's say, anti-corruption commissions in Sri Lanka, for instance, being able to do things on their own motion without complaints being filed at them. But we also face this challenge of, you know, culturally, this idea of holding people to account. You know, we maybe have an independent commissions, you know, in various different things. But independence also doesn't come by sort of a, a legislating and saying that you flicked a light switch. Independence also comes from that abrasion of like holding the state to account. And that is a culture that comes over time. And we need to see a little bit more of that. We also need to see people who have those responsibilities at times almost having, for lack of a better word, an activist spirit. Because very frequently the people who have to drive enforcement are people who are not necessarily people who are driving outcomes and want to drive prosecutions and want to have key anti-corruption cases which sort of are emblematic of a change in culture, a change in approach. And so I think that's something that we need to also address because very frequently we have individuals who may be sort of um, uh, from a different sort of uh, generation thinking of things in a different way who are still in charge of driving accountability. And I think inevitably with a change in guard, with younger people, with newer ideas coming into these sorts of positions, I'm hoping that there will be innovation around um, that sort of accountability. No, it's very helpful. I mean, I'll say uh, with respect to younger people, about 10 years ago, I was very optimistic about the prospect for younger people to change the world. And, and now with each passing year, I find myself less and less enthusiastic about that. You know, a little joke, but actually there's a serious question that I wanted to make on this point. And that's whether you do see in Sri Lanka right now a significant potential for kind of generational, I think you put it, changing of the guard or change in attitudes, uh, because the problems you just described with the culture sound like they're very sub substantial problems, but I'm curious whether you've seen evidence of progress on this front or whether you feel kind of frustrated that you don't see that much progress. Of course, cultural change takes time. It's not the kind of thing you can't, you can change a law in a relatively short amount of time. Changing cultural attitudes takes not just years, sometimes it takes decades or generations. But I'm, I wonder, do you see evidence that encourages you in Sri Lanka that there's, a, there's evidence of significant shift in cultural attitudes, especially among the younger people? Or do you feel like that process really hasn't really gotten started yet? Yeah, I mean, I think now is a particularly challenging time, purely because we, even, even within our um, sort of elected bodies, the views of young people are very rarely uh, treated as sort of a priority. And Sri Lanka is a country which has an aging population as well. Um, so unlike some of our neighbors in South Asia, which have these really 
you know, enormous numbers of young people who may be, and considerations connected to them being quite central to uh, policymaking. In Sri Lanka, the voice and the considerations of young people is very muted. And actually many young people are also sort of um, on one side, there's a great deal of engagement in the nationalist rhetoric that exists in Sri Lanka. Uh, on the other side, lots of young people also want to leave the country. So, I mean, you know, there are big, big concerns around the issues connected to young people. However, the aspirations of the young people in this country are what a lot of hope will need to be anchored on. Uh, however, I mean, the way in which young people are engaging in civic life and the opportunities which are emerging is concerning. And I mean, I think even when we're thinking around people involved in technological innovations, a lot of young people want to really stay out of the eye of the state. You know, they want to be left uninterfered on one side. And on the other side, there is still a great call and demand for state jobs and to increase the, uh, the state sector. And that is really not where Sri Lanka's economic future also exists. And there's so many needs around making the state smaller, about reducing the number of uh, jobs in state-owned enterprises, things like that. So there is, a, there is an enormous concern around how young people can also engage in some of these issues connected to governance, particularly in the fight against corruption. The opportunities are not there in, in a great scale, but I mean, um, it has to start. And I mean, even in engaging at school level and other things, it's important. But I mean, I would say that, you know, in Sri Lanka, there is also a fundamental under, understanding of right and wrong and the differentiation between those two things. So, I mean, trying to sort of encapsulate um, some issues around rights into our curriculum as well. And, you know, what, what the entitlements of citizens are, um, that is also going to be very important because sometimes our civic education is sometimes left a bit wanting. And so I think with the strengthening of our civic education, uh, you know, we can also have some hope for the future, but also in, in, in innovating around our education and curriculums and things like that, there are challenges there. And, and we, are not, we do not like changing those things very quickly, but um, we can only hope for the future. So that's fascinating. There's so much more I, I would love to ask you on that topic, but I did want to ask about one of the other initiatives that you mentioned when you earlier in our conversation laid out your list of some of the things that TI Sri Lanka has worked on, uh, and I'm asking about it partly because of, of, of some interest to me related to things that I've worked on, you talked about how TI Sri Lanka is putting together its own list or has put together its own list of so-called politically exposed persons. And for those in our listening audience who are not familiar with this terminology, politically exposed persons or PEPs, P-E-Ps, are individuals who due to their either government, current or former government positions or close relationships with people in government are viewed as high risk for things like money laundering. So when financial institutions like banks are approached by an individual who is a PEP, who's a politically exposed person, under various legal and regulatory regimes, under US law, under the European Union's anti-money laundering directives and so forth, the financial institution is supposed to engage in what's called enhanced due diligence, more careful scrutiny of someone who's a PEP, a politically exposed person. To do this, 
the financial institution needs to identify who the PEPs are. And there's no official list. To my knowledge, there's no government or uh, international organization that publishes any kind of list of politically exposed persons. So what most banks do is they rely on their own searches and uh, private sector vendors that put together their own lists to help with PEP screening. I'd done a little bit of research about this, but, but T.I. Sri Lanka's work on this really caught my eye because for, for many years, some had suggested that civil society organizations could start playing more of a role in putting together registers or lists of politically exposed, exposed persons. Um, but I think T.I. Sri Lanka may, I don't know if it's the only, but I think it's the first one that I was aware of. And I would love you to say a little bit more about the background of this project what challenges you encountered, what you hope that it will accomplish, whether you think it will be sustainable over time. I'd love you if you could share with me and with our listeners a little bit more about this very innovative project that your organization took on. Sure. So, I mean, we had seen in uh, Ukraine the way in which critically exposed person registers had been created by non-state actors. And I think the one thing that we realized was that um, there is a general understanding in Sri Lanka that the proximity of those in elected office, bureaucracy, business is quite inter intertwined. And sort of that interweaving of people leads to certain conflicts of interest, which are not sufficiently understood. So I think our approach to it was initially to try and think about how we can map out those sorts of connections and try to verify them. And we used the Financial Action Task Force of the G20's definition of a politically exposed person as a basis upon which we could um, uh, set this up. And I think it's, it's, it's not easy. Uh, it's been particularly challenging mapping these connections. And I think that's almost sort of in phase two for us. But what we initially started to do was to look at all of the different state-owned enterprises and start shining a light on who sits on the boards of these different state-owned enterprises in, in different sort of ministries, um, who, who holds sort of senior bureaucratic positions. Now, I would like to say that immediately, a politically, being a politically exposed person does not mean that you're doing something wrong. It just is a, by virtue of the high office that you hold, that you, um, that you may be classified as a pet. But that was the first step that we took. And funnily enough, what we realized was that because there still is a very limited proactive disclosure of information about who holds um, uh, office um, on the director boards of uh, SOEs and things like that, we started realizing that lots of people, their interest in our work actually connected to just wanting to find out who actually controls these different entities. So it's also a, an opportunity of starting a conversation and shining a light on this. And this was not something that we had envisaged when we um, actually thought of starting this out. But I mean, this also, I mean, and if I could just sort of also to highlight another interesting area, which is that even domestically, this area around politically exposed persons could potentially connect with things around international flows of money. And so when we're looking at areas around proceeds of crime, uh, asset recovery, things like that, there are interesting interconnections between all of these things. 
And I mean, um, as a country which has been sort of focused on, even when I look in the past, um, there have been sort of international meetings where Sri Lanka has been a top priority country on asset recovery. There are sort of interesting lessons that we've also learned about how the international community could potentially um, uh, engage with other countries around issues around asset recovery as well. And I'd be happy to sort of tell, tell you a few of the interesting observations that came from that. So I think one interesting thing around asset recovery is that Sri Lanka is a country which has a very, um, before the sort of recent re-emergence of nationalism, I mean, we are a country where nationalism is, you know, a very important part of our uh, political identity. And I think one thing that I've realized in looking at um, the entire system of asset recovery is that, you know, you have, the, um, you have the destination countries and you have the countries which are the victims. And so um, when even looking at how asset recovery can take place, and it's very, very difficult in tracing assets and all of these sorts of things, but in the repatriation of assets, there is a slightly paternalistic view that also exists which is about, you know, okay, well, we'll return the assets on the basis that it is used for these, these, these uh, purposes. And, you know, in a country which has sort of um, a deep-rooted nationalism, that narrative of, you know, well, here are what you can, here are the uh, areas that you can use the money that was legitimately yours that is now being returned to you all, these are the these are the areas. Now I can understand why destination countries want to and try to ensure that monies that are returned are not sort of re-corrupted. But I think we have to also start looking at alternative ways in which domestic innovations around asset recovery, ensuring that there are institutions which are which also have non-state actors involved in it to sort of ensure some degree of uh, non-state oversight on returned assets. Those sorts of things are very important to look at because um, otherwise this idea of um, trying to sort of um, have conditions to the return of assets is a really, really delicate and sensitive issue, which I sometimes feel like destination countries do not always pay sufficient um, consideration to. Um, so I just thought maybe I'd flag that particular point up. I'm glad that you did. In fact, in a recent episode of this podcast, I had the opportunity to speak with uh, Robert Banzanares, who is one of the U.S. law enforcement officials who worked on the Equatorial Guinea, the Teodorban Obiang case. And that's, that's a case where precisely the issue you just raised has come up. That's a particularly extreme case because there are the concerns that any money given back to Equatorial Guinea is essentially giving it back to the person or family that stole it are, are very strong and very plausible. But you're exactly right that the, the that general tension exists quite frequently. It comes up with respect to the return of assets in places like Nigeria, uh, where there's been a turnover in government, but there's still this concern. So I, th I think it's an absolutely an important issue. I'm glad you brought it up. On the on the on your register of politically exposed persons, just to go back to that very briefly first, thank you for reminding me that some Ukrainian civil society organizations had, had done this as well. Uh, I'd, I'd forgotten that, so credit where credit is due to the good people in Ukraine. The only other question I wanted to ask you about this right now, we could go on it for much longer, but, but time is short, has to do with one of the main concerns that's been raised about proposals for civil society groups to, to take a leading role in this sort of thing. So again, 
many who are concerned that financial institutions are relying on these confidential lists prepared by private sector vendors have said, well, maybe civil society can play a role in identifying PEPs in their own countries. The concern that's often raised about this, though, is sustainability. For a PEP list to be useful, not just for advocacy in a particular year, but to actually be the thing that the financial institutions would, would look at, it needs to not just be created at a given time, it needs to be continuously updated. Because as soon as a financial institution or whatever thinks this list might be out of date, there might be people on it who should have been dropped, it might not include people who should have been added, then they're not going to use this as an ongoing resource. And civil society organizations, as you probably know as well as anyone, have limited resources, many demands on their time. And so the skeptics of these sorts of projects have suggested, well, it looks good, but five years from now, is this really going to be an ongoing project? And if not, is it worth it? I'm sure you're familiar with this skeptical line, and I'd be interested in what you had to say about it and why your organization decided to proceed with this project, notwithstanding that sort of skepticism. Yeah, no, and I think, I think this issue around sustainability is a key one. What was important is that we also began to identify the fact that there are secondary benefits of having this sort of open register, which is trying to take the language now, let's say when we launch something like this, this is covered across the singular media, the Tamil media, the English media. So trying to get that sort of language around politically exposed persons into conversation beyond just that in, within the financial sector, I think was a key thing. The idea that it also, our PEP register also then started shining a light on state-owned enterprises, all of these different state entities, the way in which who has authority in these entities. Even achieving those small ends is actually very, very big steps in Sri Lanka. However, I think, you know, the point still stands. Will an organization like TISL be able to provide a PEP database a little bit like a Thomson's Reuters database? It's highly unlikely. I mean, there's technology investment in scraping um, news sources, connecting the dots using now even probably, I assume, using artificial intelligence to some degree as well. We just are not at that level, not operating with those sorts of budgets. So I think we have had to be a lot, a lot more modest in what we hope to achieve. Um, and we also need to be a little bit more focused on trying to also publicly source some of these informal connections that exist between people and then verify it ourselves. So I think the one thing that we are used to doing is getting complaints from others and verifying complaints ourselves. So, you know, using that our own experience that even connects to election monitoring and all of these sorts of things in verification of information, that's something that's going to be important. And I think the way in which we have built this as well is that we have built it in such a way that, you know, it is not an enormously resource intensive process. And instead, it is something where we have a few staff members who focus on continuously keeping it updated, responding to public updates. Every time there are changes within um, state-owned enterprises, ensuring that we um, use areas of our own expertise like right to information. 
to sort of ensure that we um, periodically send right to information requests to ensure that personnel changes haven't taken place, things like that. There are some sort of economically feasible medium to long-term approaches to keeping this up to date. But if we went for the full bells and whistles approach to it of scraping data, things like that, it will be challenging to ensure that it is active for five years in five years time. So we've had to be a little bit modest in our um, ambition, but we are committed to keeping it consistent going forward. Fantastic. We're almost out of time, and I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but if you don't mind, I want to ask you one final question. And, and what I want, I want to ask you about is, in the five-plus years you've been working in this capacity, what you've, what you've learned? Are there, are there topics or issues where your own views have changed based on your experience in this role working on these issues? Uh, anything that's really surprised you? And maybe a way to frame this kind of question is if you were giving advice to your former self or maybe to somebody else coming into a similar position, maybe in Sri Lanka or maybe in another country facing similar kinds of challenges, what would you emphasize? You want to pick one or two things that really were, were not totally clear to you going in or where you feel like you're, you learned something new or your views have changed. What might you point to? Yeah, I think maybe one overarching point, and maybe there are three, but the first point would be about the fact that it's important to anchor our public voice in technical reason. Because very frequently in, with civil society, there is a sense that a civil society organization could be pursuing one particular party political agenda. And I think by being very sort of technically underpinned, it also protects organizations from being cast as being party political. So I think that's a very really key um, point that I would make. The second one I would make is that, especially when it comes to advocacy and trying to engage with elected officials and others, it's essential to go cross-party. So it connects with the first point. We were able to, for the first time, get um, members of parliament in Sri Lanka to unilaterally disclose their asset declarations. What was key there was not only about getting the parliamentarians to do that, but the fact that we got people who are not political friends to come and sit at the same table and take that stance of disclosing that sort of information. So this idea of cross-party engagement is key. The next point I would say is that the um, political winds blow in funny ways. And suddenly you can go from a situation where uh, the doors of the state are closed to ones where the doors of the state are completely open with changes of government and people saying, you know what, why don't you all sit there and why don't you all actually draft this particular bill? And I think it's essential to understand the fine uh, sort of um, title walk of um, collaboration and co-option. One needs to be able to collaborate with the state, but you have to also be able to define where you're actually getting so deep into assisting the state that you lose your objectivity. And I think um, that was something that, you know, we, we put a lot of thought into um, during the change of government in 2015, which actually protected us as well 
to ensure that we were not overinvested in any particular government. And I think that is really important. And I think, you know, this is a little context specific, but it's also essential to try and bring some new faces into the civil society space. Very frequently, we can try to keep engaging the same group of people um, who are almost like an extended group of friends. And I think that's where it's really important to give responsibility to, to new young graduates who come with a completely different set of people that they engage with, with different interests, bringing all of those sorts of new, different um, areas of thinking, this idea of just encouraging um, constructive internal criticism, um, curiosity, those are things that come from the next generation that do not come from engaging the same old people over and over again. So bringing new blood in is also essential. And I think that's something that has worked quite well for us and hopefully will sort of serve us well looking to the medium and long term. That seems like great advice from beginning to end. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. Again, on this latest episode of Kickback, my guest has been Asoka Obesekare, the Executive Director of Transparency International Sri Lanka. Again, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to answer all these questions and share your experience and insights with me and with everyone in our listening audience. With pleasure, Professor. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like what we do, please write us a review or become a Patreon. Every cent goes directly back into the podcast. And if you want to get updates about Kickback, follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. As always, a big shout out to all of our loyal Patreons. We really appreciate the support. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time.